0: Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Creativity. Here's how to get unstuck. I'm your host, creativity coach, Nancy Norbeck. Let's go. Author Matt Lation spends his days as a software engineer before morphing into a fervent writer at night. He's best known for his writing and research for his debut novel, Jack the Ripper, Live and Uncut, which has received the Jack the Ripper Book of the Year Award for fiction from the Ripperology community. He has also appeared as a Jack the Ripper expert at Megacon and on the History Channel. Matt joins me today to talk about why that book was self-published for only six months, his foray into writing a thriller in a fantasy setting, the importance of encouragement in the creative process, why creative folks should always be bold and take chances to promote their own work, and more. Here's my conversation with Matt Lation. Matt, welcome to Follow Your Curiosity.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure, pleasure to be here. An honor to be here. Actually. <laughs> uh,
0: so I start everybody out with the same question, which is, okay. were you a creative kid or did you discover your creative side later on?
1: I was, uh, in a way I may have uh, given away to the sporty side for a couple of decades after high school, but I definitely was the first person to ever encourage me to write was my first grade teacher. And I, she read a story that I wrote where I was staying in a haunted house and eating chicken sandwiches with ghosts. And it, I guess it struck a chord with her, but I remember her parting words to me when we said goodbye at the end of first grade was write more stories. And I had other teachers give me that to her, And I think it was something that was definitely present during high school. But once I got out of high school, like I said, it was more career and sports I bet it wasn't until only maybe about ten years ago that I really got start got back into the you know, the exploring my creative side and, and writing more. But yes, definitely always been an outside the box kind of guy. And that has actually reflected in my work too. Even though it's boring computer software engineering, uh, you know, I, I usually try to add some sort of flavor to it.
0: Well, I think that, you know, I am not A software engineer, but I have worked in tech support, and I think anything where you're doing something like that—I mean, you're either creating something new or you're solving a problem—and I think there is a lot of creativity in either of those pursuits, whether it comes with a paintbrush or a violin or a computer keyboard.
1: It is, and sometimes it's it's helpful, but there's other times when it can be to your detriment. Yeah, I, I remember I worked on a help desk for a couple of years with. A team of seven guys just a wonderful team wonderful people and a guy that had just come in he had all the paperwork all the degrees in network administration and all types of uh, certifications and we gave him a a problem to troubleshoot and he spent two days uh, exploring what was wrong and the answer was actually just simply changing the letter that was in a file from one to another and if he changed that it would have been fine I learned that we all learned that through experience on the job.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It just sort of goes to show there's just some things that uh, that a classroom can't teach you. And I, I think that might be why I didn't go to college. I sought a career in IT, and I just I don't know whether it was feared or just felt that I within five years what I would learn would not be relevant ten or fifteen years later. So I thought just learning on my feet in the industry was was the best way to go about that.
0: That's so interesting because so many people don't make that call.
1: And it's not something I advocate. I say, hey, you want to be like me, like, it's go to school, obviously. (laughs) Um, And in the early years for me, it was hard because, you know, a lot of recruiters said that having uh, a degree reflected like a commitment to the industry. But now I've been in that industry a quarter of a century. So I'd like people to think that I'm committed to it and, and that I'm here for the long haul. Uh, obviously, unless uh, a writing career takes pre- you know, supersedes that, which I would not complain one bit.
0: <laughs> I would hope that 25 years would be evidence enough for just about anybody.
1: Commit- commitment to anything, right?
0: Right. <laughs> 25 years is a long time.
1: Yeah, for sure. I know I totally aged myself with that comment too, but that, that's all good.
0: <laughs> it's all right. So you mentioned that your teacher really encouraged you. Did your parents yes. have anything to say about you writing stories?
1: My my parents were pretty supportive uh, in that regard. I I came from I I grew up basically with my My parents divorced when I was about a year old, so I was too young to really experience that. But um, I, but I did grow up with a, a stepfather. My mother remarried. My dad didn't. But uh, I I guess when I discuss my parents, I need I should really be mentioning all three in that regard, and that they were supportive of those sorts of things for sure i remember reading a short story i wrote to my mother late in high school and it was basically about a bounty hunter that was stalking a, a notorious con man and the 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 only thing she really said was it was, a, it was very heavy on the language which is no <laughs> surprise it's the australian way but uh, but no i uh, but she definitely liked it though so no i i, I think it's it's always good to have encouragement from parents, but I think also having, never having discouragement, is just as important too. So, you know some parents won't exactly be behind you and be like the soccer mums or dads cheering you all the way to the point where that's annoying. But as long as that that you know, as long as parents are really throw up that block in your way, you know, saying, well, no, I don't want you to go go and play the sport, or we don't want you to, you know, I don't want you to not go to college, <laughs> but no, my, my parents were very supportive. Um, my mother is one of my most avid readers. I know I win no prize for saying that. Uh, I think most people can lay that claim to that, but, but I, I w- it was an honor when she she read the first book that I wrote. Uh, sadly, my, my father passed away, uh, he, so he never got to see uh, any of my literary works, but, but he knew I definitely had it in me.
0: Yeah, and you make a good point. You know, I've been doing this long enough to know that there's a huge difference if you support your kids or if you try to get in their way. You know, the kids who are supported have a much easier time making things work. And yes. yet not being discouraged is still a dramatic improvement over being actively discouraged. Right, exactly. Yeah.
1: And I would even go a step further and say that it applies to spouses. As well, I have a a, a wonderful wife who who is ex- extremely supportive, uh, and she's not really a beta reader, but my beta listener. <laughs> when I write something, I, I usually read it out to her to, to to get her, you know, to get her input before anybody's. So, uh, I think that's also been a driving force for me. But supporting kids, absolutely. Like I have two, uh, I have a son and a daughter. My wife and I completed the set as as we we, we put it. Uh, but both of my children are also on, on the spectrum and therefore support is, it, it's just at a different level
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, when it comes to that that kind of thing. So um, no, uh, I've learned the value of support through, from my own parents, but also from the parenting experience for, for sure.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So what happened that got you back into writing again?
1: I was I saw an advertisement on Facebook for uh for the website masterclass. And it was a class that was hosted by James Patterson. I was a big fan of James's stories. I, I read a lot of the Alex Cross books. And it was a class on writing. I at that point I tried to write I think I tried to write one novel and I just deliberately wrote only the scenes I really wanted to write. I got to about 60 pages and it just was dead in the water at that point, but I did his masterclass, but it also had the incentive that you qualified for a competition where you could submit a book, a plot synopsis and a sample chapter for a story idea. And the winner got to write their collaborate on their story with James Patterson. So I saw that as a, as a huge uh, opportunity, but for someone who's new to writing, uh, it probably wasn't the best time th- to do that. But his masterclass was actually very helpful. Uh, I've done a few of the masterclasses with different writers, and I think you take something away from each one. There, there's some overlap, of course, but there's different things that you can take from each person that you listen to because you know that they, they've been there. That they, you know, this is their their area of expertise, and the big thing I took away from Patterson's was the importance of two things was the importance of creating an outline for your story. I'm a planner and, but also the importance of just constantly propelling the plot with, with every chapter. Uh, You know, I've written a, a number of genres, but I think that's something that's been prevalent in everything that I've written. It, I still like to propel the plot, not necessarily at thriller or breakneck pace, but, some I like to give my reader a, a reason at the end of every chapter to to want to keep going no it's, it's not time for bed yet you got another <laughs> chapter in you so
0: next thing you know it's 2 a.m
1: I I've had that complaint from from a lot of readers and you know what I will take that to the bank every time they they say that uh, I, Absolutely. I yeah and I know that they mean that as, as a compliment too so yeah I, I mean as a writer that's that's what you want. And that was a quote from Patterson that I really remembered the most was he said, if somebody said, you, if you read something to somebody and they say, well, that sounds good. or that sounds excellent. That's not really the response you want. The best response from somebody, if you either tell them about a story or read them a snippet of a story or they read it, the, the best reaction is what happens next? I would love to see more. I would like more like that is what you want. And that was one of the first in one of the early lessons in Patterson's masterclass. And that's something that's stuck with me ever since I did not win his competition, but the day I found out I didn't was actually one of the happiest days I could imagine, because what I submitted to him was a story that I've always wanted to write, but I had, um, I conceived the Ripper project and was fully into researching that. I already had a great um history with the case, but I wanted to, you know, research that more and I just loved the premise of that story. And I didn't think and I didn't see James as somebody that delved much into the non-fictional events in stories. Yeah, you know, he is completely fictional. So that's why I didn't enter it in the contest. Uh, it was more a case of I didn't think I'd have a chance. It, but, so much in, in writing is about exclusion,
2: mm-hmm. you,
1: know, uh, you know, like, oh, uh, you know, this is 130,000 words when you should have 90. No, we're not even going to read this. Like, and, you know, oh, you send us this genre. Well, I represent this genre. I'm not even going to read that. Like, there's different, re- sometimes I think, like so many things in life, you know, people look for reasons to exclude things. And I saw a, a huge historical and non-fictional element in my story as something that would see me excluded from this competition immediately. So I submitted something that was, a, you know, a great idea on paper, a great story on paper, but, um, but yeah, I, I as much as I wanted to write it, the, the Ripper one was, was more, of, uh, the direction I wanted to go.
0: Yeah. And I, I'm glad to hear that you didn't force yourself to write the other one first, because I don't <laughs> think that ever goes well. I'm a big fan of going where the energy is because the energy is there for a reason.
1: Right. Uh, in in order to produce your best work, it should be. Uh, absolutely. You know, I, th- I think there's a business element behind a lot of decisions when it comes to writing, but what you'd, like you said, go where the energy is, it is a huge part of that. And I'm, I'm currently tossing up, I'm due to start a new story and I'm tossing up between three uh, ideas. I love all of them and I really can't split uh, one from the other like that that level of energy or belief in writing it is the same so I'm soliciting separate opinions on, on what I should do just yeah. thriller thriller readers basically so which which one of these again has that I've lo- I'd like to know more uh facet to it so um and of course the vote's been split so I'm no nearer to finding out which one I should do so I think I'm just going to have to Flip a coin or throw throw darts at a board or something and and then see where I land.
0: Is there one where you would like to know more?
1: All three. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I, I. Well, that's biased, but uh, one is a little more personal, I guess, and a little closer to home. And it does address something that I've always wanted to do, uh, which was write a book that raised autism awareness. And I initially thought of an idea to write a, a, a book that was, I guess, autobiographical from a father's point of view. And it was my son's early years from birth to more or less halfway through kindergarten, because the early years are so important when it comes to diagnosis. And I've I had my agent tell me and I, uh, I, I basically tell me people tell me not to write it for different reasons. And they're all valid. So it's very hard to go against some of the reasoning why I shouldn't even though it's a story I would love to tell it, it like I said, write it, writing it in not, a non-fictional biographical or memoirish story is not uh, the way to go, but being a thriller writer as uh, one of my favorite lanes to write in, I did conceive a plot for a thriller, which involves uh, autistic characters. Uh, so I could, and I've actually, some people that have read parts of it have said Oh I love this this chapter and this chapter, and these were actually taken from real life experiences. So I see an opportunity to inject th- these stories and raise autism awareness like I planned, but also write a you know a, a, what I consider to be a, a tight sort of psychological thriller with with high stakes high tension of course and um, I think I can you know ad- address both writing needs uh, in the one story. But also I think it's something that has a potential to be more meaningful than other stuff. You know, I, I say to people, I, I write airport fiction stuff, <laughs> something that you buy in an airport that's you'll read on a plane and probably not think twice about after you read it. But uh, I, yeah, I, I don't mind if, you know, the, to me, as long as my reader is entertained, but this is something, but this is a story that I think would, uh, in, it would encourage debate. It would invite discussion and um yeah, like and I would love to have one of my stories carry that that type of meaning. And the story though, I had planned to write in a dual POV, but these were people that were taking care of autistic children. I, I would never write in the voice of an autistic child. My son and my daughter are autistic, but I have no right to that gives me no right to use that voice, in my opinion. But as a carer, I've lived that research for over a decade, so I think I'm pretty well qualified. Like I said, people's favourite scenes in this story that I've written so far—I've written nearly hundred pages. It's—they're all taken from experiences from real life. So, you know, sometimes it comes under so many things in, in literature, and that is, you know, um, the truth is stranger than fiction, and that's like the Ripper book. You know, I give people a bit of an info download after they've read the story and they can't believe how much of it is actually true. You know, it's a fascinating case. It doesn't need my help to embellish anything. I think even, they, though I, even though I embellish something.
0: <laughs> I think you're hitting on you know that that famous adage for writers that write what you know. You know, I think the fact that those scenes are coming from your own experience gives them a veracity that people can feel even if they don't know that that's where they're coming from.
2: Uh, I
1: tend to agree. The write what you know is definitely a very famous um, line, I I guess, or or phrase that that people refer to. I I think my take on that is writing what you know is easier, but I think writers are definitely capable of writing something they don't know. Yes. And and an example of that is another story that I, I wrote. I wrote a fantasy-based Who Done It and most people consider it to be the best story I've written to date. And I am I have very little background in fantasy reading. I, I read it a lot as a kid, but once I started reading thrillers, that totally took <laughs> over. Uh, but I yeah, you know, but obviously I've seen a lot of fantasy-based movies and, and things like that as well. But to write it I, I had to definitely do in a way research on on the fantasy genre and become a bit more of a, a student in in the genre and it was totally alien to me in terms of writing it and yeah I so I it's a story I'm very happy with and I'm very proud of so but that was a story that I it's not a case of write what you know although there's a murder mystery in it with plots and the, like is it the pacing of a thriller yeah that's me staying in my lane and being comfortable but it's entirely in a fantasy world with fantasy characters so you know there that was a there's a lot of unknown territory in that for me so i i do agree writing what you know is more comfortable um for a writer uh, to express themselves but also if it's something like the ripper book where it's got a lot of historic uh historical fiction in it um at least I took my research seriously, and it was over fourteen months of, of research, um, which included writing the story as well at the time. but I you know I, I take research for, for any story seriously, whether it's whether it's the Ripper's White Chapel or even in a book where I wrote where uh, there was a prison visit, and I actually went onto their website and downloaded their manual for visitation procedures and what took place. And I reflected that accurately in the story. I could have written anything, but sometimes I just get to stick with the detail on some things. And like you said, I want to know what I'm writing about in that chapter. It it is important sometimes, especially if people, if your readers know there is that stronger connection. And that was something that the Gaiman said in, in his masterclass about the importance of using truth and fact to bridge. A reader with fiction, if they can, if there is parts of this that they can identify with, it makes identifying with the unknown a lot easier. And which made me think, well, I am so screwed to write a fantasy in that case, (laughs) but I'll I'll do what I can. (laughs) No, I, but, but again, that was um, very important, that very important uh, quote from Gaiman that I remembered. And I still think of that. And like I said, I try to be factual about different. Uh, things that I put into my fiction. I've seen a lot of uh, the writers that phone it in. I was at a I was a bouchercon and I saw somebody on a on a panel discussing research in stories. And the first thing they said after they introduced themselves was, "Well, I, I don't really research much for my stories." I'm thinking, "Why are you sitting there then?" You know, people want to know. You know, people want to hear from the people that that actually research, not the people that kind of. Research or, or only do a little bit of research. Yeah, you know, it, it's yeah. I'm a detail oriented guy, and to see someone do say that on a you know what I would consider a prestigious panel, which is Bouchercon, uh, I was surprised and a little bit taken aback by such a a way to introduce yourself to the panel. It's like saying, "Hi, I've got nothing valuable to contribute here whatsoever." So.
0: I mean. If you've written pure fantasy where you're making everything up, that's one thing. Yes. But if you are yeah. doing something historical, I think you know, I I started a historical novel a couple of years ago that has yeah. been lying untouched for a while, but it was such a shock to me I mean it wasn't it wasn't because my my MFA thesis novel is a fantasy novel. So I didn't have to do any kind of research. It was up to me to, you know, decide what kind of place this was and all of the details. But if you're going to set something in a particular year in a particular place, there are always going to be people who know exactly how things were back then and will immediately write you off if you're obviously just making things up. But I also... Just found myself so curious. And the number of details that popped up that I was curious about, because I'm a pantser, so I had no, no clue where I was going. But, no, you know, so and, I was sitting, <laughs> and I was sitting there going, OK, so when did electric streetlights become a thing in London? Right. And I never found a satisfactory answer to that because I think it happened in patches in, you know, and so there's not like a solid record. But at the same time, I wondered how long it would take for a letter to get from Shrewsbury to London. And I sent off an email to the whatever the Royal Postal Museum is, and they sent me a whole timetable.
2: Oh, I just was like,
0: wow. Look at oh, what you can find
1: on the internet. <laughs> so, oh yeah, I've I've definitely got some stories there. I I would like to tell one if I can.
0: Sure.
1: Well, firstly, yes, people can are uh, so accommodating if you're trying to, you know, find out details. Because, and again, it's I think it's just an appreciation for, for truth. But my my favorite one was uh, I'm sort of giving up one of my stories here, but that's fine. Uh, there, there's a scene in my story because my my main character is a uh, is what's called projected. It's a form of time travel. And he's put somewhere. And he, but he has the presence of a ghost, like, say, uh, Patrick Swayze in Ghost. Mm-hmm. So he can see everything. He can walk around, go through doors. No one knows he's there. And as a trial mission, he is sent to the first time the Beatles performed in concert with Ringo. So the first time they were the Fab Four. And that took place in August 1962 in, at a place called Hume Hall. Now I would bet I would have got a lot of photos different info all that sort of thing but I never could find out what Hume Hall looked like on the inside. But you know, outside it's great Google Maps thank you hello because it hasn't really changed much over the years. But I couldn't because nobody knew of the significance of that night and this was pre smartphone social media that there's no photos that can really tell, keep, tell depict this for me. So I'm trying to find it. And the source that I finally came across, I found a YouTube clip of a busker named Danny McAvoy. And he was sitting in the middle of Hume Hall and he played an acoustic version of the Beatles song, Misery. And at the end of the clip, he asked his daughter who was filming him to do a a 360 panorama of, of the hall to show people what it looked like. And then he gave like this little two-minute speech about the Hall and its history. And I had my, you know, pictures, a thousand words. I had like, you know, a million words to describe Hume Hall after after seeing this. And I actually reached out to him over Facebook for it with a question. And he answered me about two hours later. And, And I just, I could not believe the kindness of some people in some of the research I did. I, I encountered some people who were not as accommodating and were downright impolite and rude. But you're going to get that mixed bag. But for the most part, it was it was definitely uh, very uh, very polite, very accommodating, and very helpful people. And when I briefly self published the book, they're all in my acknowledgements for for sure. I, I had to you know, pay tribute to to them for being so nice.
0: Absolutely how fabulous to find that video that's almost like it was tailor-made for you too <laughs>
1: right yeah it was it was like if you're it's like the virtual room tour you get of a hotel you know, i yeah i had that uh, inside the uh, hume hall so it was i was and it was totally empty as well which was even better in a way so yeah it was just dumb luck and like i said i had a couple other questions for danny uh, he, he's from Liverpool, so. Uh, I had a couple of Beatles and humor questions and he was more than happy to to give me the the information I needed.
0: That's fantastic. I love stories like that.
1: Yep. One of my most valued resources for my research was a busker.
0: <laughs> there you go. Never underestimate buskers.
1: Oh yeah, for sure.
0: So we've kind of danced around the subject of the Ripper Project and I think that you sure. should tell us all about it.
1: Okay. Uh, a long time ago, I, I did write it was my first novel. I wrote a story that involved, as I mentioned, time travel and the Jack the Ripper murders. When I conceived the idea for the story, I thought, we'll, we'll never know who solved the murders unless you're there. And that was instantly like a light bulb for me. I thought so much Ripper fiction as people peering around corners or hiding in shadows. What if I got a character in a, in a situation where he is right there? he has a front row seat to all of this and you know hey you want to get up and close and personal for the ripper murders be careful what you wish for this guy's going there. so i i started plotting the story and but i also there because that world was already built the requirement was to research it and then i had to but but the world of the time travel that i invented was different because i thought okay i'm writing about time travel i'm writing about jack the ripper these are the two very well trodden tropes. You know, I need to bring something fresh for both of these. And so I, that was what I did for like the first three months of the story was working at how am I going to do that? And I even had my own like little Q&A for projection. Like what rules were there? You know, do I get tired? Do I get hungry? Do I feel the elements? You know, do I follow the rules, the laws of gravity? You know, sorts of things. And to me, I had to have those answers first before I could write this. And as I mentioned, that was about three or four months of just being in that headspace trying to create it all. And after I wrote the story, I I, I had the usual writer imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure whether it was any good. You know, hey, I could send it to my mom and she told me it was great, but that doesn't bring me any closer to knowing if I'm a good writer or not. So I did start vetting it with some people that that hadn't read it. And I did send it to a professional editor who worked for a publishing house. And the way it worked was she had her own editing services. And if she liked it, she would submit it to the house to review for six weeks. And then if they liked it, offer uh, a deal. She got about two thirds through the story and told her publishing house, don't even review offer this guy a deal immediately, and whilst I was tempted to do it, my dream has always been a very simple one, and that's I just want to be able to walk into a store and see my book <laughs> on the shelves, and I didn't put it there. <laughs> you know it's right. It's been ordered through distribution or what have you, but basically that's the dream. Anything after that is just gravy, but for me, right? that that's as far as I want to go for now, like that's the first step. So, I figured this publishing house, though, wasn't a stepping stone towards that. It was a lot of print on demand stuff. So, mm-hmm. I thought, so I spoke to the editor about that and she agreed. She said, no, this should probably go further. At the same time, I, I knew writing a Ripper story that it would come under scrutiny from the Ripper community. Uh, ironically, whilst fiction is something that comes under scrutiny, uh, Ripper nonfiction comes under greater scrutiny. Like if, you, if you have a story that says case closed or case solved, it's immediately going to be disrespected by the Ripper community. But I wanted to write a story that had the mainstream appeal of a thriller, but it also offered really good insight into the case, and people that were experts in the case would appreciate its ac- accuracy. You know, like I said I, before, I didn't I didn't need to embellish on this story at all. Um, there was so much in, interesting facts about the the River Murders that this already makes for a great story without my help. You know, I've just got to the word I always use is braid. I've got to braid my fictional world into this factual world and kind of make both responsible for each other. That was the way I saw it. So anyway. I had sent it to probably the two most critical places I could have chosen, but to me, best way to vet it. So I sent it to a a place called the Whitechapel Society, and I also sent it to Ripperologist Magazine. Now, the Whitechapel Society don't print reviews, but I was just interested in their feedback. Mm -hmm. And Ripperologist Magazine does. uh, They dedicate like a number of pages to the nonfiction reviews and then the fiction reviews. There are books and books about the river that come out every month. So at that time, I was sort of in this state of what do I do with this story? I had queried some agents. I had received rejections. And I think a lot of that was because I was just so green when it came to writing queries. I had a lot to learn. I didn't write very good queries early (laughs) on. You know, People laugh or, or cringe at their own writing. I read my early query letters. I'm like, oh, my God, did I really say that? Um
0: querying is an art
1: it is It is. I think some of it is formula but some of it is also um mm. some of it is lottery and some of it is just saying the right thing that's going to strike a chord with somebody so I but I got their feedback and it was through, through the roof it was incredible feedback from them the Whitechapel Society wanted to publish a review art, an article review about it Ripperologist Magazine wanted to review it, uh, but both needed an ISBN to do it. In other words, I had to publish the book. Right. They're not going to review an unpublished manuscript. <laughs> so I thought about it and made the co- the decision, okay, maybe it's, I'll self-publish this instead. And I did. And obviously, it was very well uh, received by the Ripper community, which is very rare for a fiction uh, work. and. I had people read it that I've never met before. I've made a lot of friends on this journey of people I've never met, but my story has allowed me to connect with them and they've connected with my writing and they've vowed to read anything I I write, which is very flattering. And after I self-published, people talk down about self-publishing, but for me, the one gift that it gave me was immunity from imposter syndrome. I'll never feel it again because the underlying question that you know, that that has writers either on their knees sometimes or in the fetal position wondering yeah you know, do i write decent stuff you know it, it well that is the underlying question do i am i a good storyteller do people like what i write right and from my very brief stint of self publishing i learned okay i tell a decent story people like my stories so Maybe I should try and pursue something you know, bigger. Plus, I had zero social media presence. So I had, I was not, the phrase I always use is I'm a better storyteller than a story seller. <laughs> and, I, and I was I was doing nothing to promote this story. Any copies sell was basically word of mouth. I think Facebook was the only place where I really tried to, to put it out there. So after six months, I still queried, but at that point, it was like a trap door. This is what I was talking about with exclusion. Oh, self-published. I never got past first base with a single agent.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: No one wanted to read it. And then I met my first agent, Shannon Also, and uh, became friends with her and uh, her agency, Victor Chris on Twitter. And during an Ask Agent session, I really showed my cynical side and she, <clears throat> she sent me a private message, you know, saying, "Do you want to talk about it a little more?" And I was surprised. Agents are usually not that accessible. I'm not saying they're unaccessible people, but to reach out privately, I considered against the norm.
2: Right.
1: So I immediately uh, had an appreciation for that. She, so I told her about my story, and I said, "Look, and I'm just getting crucified over this thing because it's self, you know, because I briefly self-published it." Um, and it doesn't have a chance. People aren't even reading it. So she asked for the fall and she offered representation four days later. And I was shocked, but she said, I'm sorry it took so long. I actually read your story in just over a day. But I figured if I was calling you that soon, that might be just inspire a different thought process towards all of this altogether. I'm like, hey, I, I probably would have felt better or been more encouraged, but um I loved Shannon. Shannon passed away um, sadly just over a year ago. But um, one of the things that I really miss and adored about her was she she did see bigger picture. Because I I was very humbled when when I spoke to her about signing with her, and she just said, "This isn't the only story you've got in you, is it?" I said, "No." I said exactly. She said, "So whether we have issues with the self-published or not." I know you have other stories in that little head of yours and I know it's going to produce other stories. And so that was, I, I wish other authors were, are afforded that kind of tolerance, you know, because yes, some people may may have self published 10 books. That's not the end of them. I always say like some writers usually have their best story ahead of them, not behind them. So, you know, to, if you're judging just the story and not the writer, I mean, obviously you're signing someone on account of the story. That's huge, but I think the writer has to be considered when looking at this and the story, which I naively titled Jack the Ripper live and uncut. uh, It was, you know, it, to me, it reflects a lot of what potential I have creatively as, as a writer. It's been likened to Patterson with its, no, you're not quitting here. End of the chapter. Um, it has some puzzles and mysteries within the mystery, sort of Dan Brown style. You know, and these are authors that I admire. Uh, don't intentionally mean to emulate. It's just, you know, like you said, write what you know. I like to tell right. stories based on stories I like. And so yes, I naively named it Jack the Ripper Live and Uncut because I thought if people type Jack the Ripper in Amazon for searching for it, up it would come. I didn't know about. Their keyword algorithms when you self-publish where you can say, you know, I could have typed, you know, Funyuns. And if someone (laughs) typed Funyuns, my book comes up. So so I could have just had it as a keyword and not necessarily in the title. Mm -hmm. But that was a very naive choice that served me very well. So anyway, trying to keep this chronological. After six months, I pulled the plug on it after I signed with Shannon. Uh, it underwent a lot of rewrites. It did go out on submission to to, to a few editors, and the feedback was okay. Uh, one in particular uh, I found extremely validating. Uh, actually, a, a guest of yours, you're familiar with him, Tom oh, Holden. Okay, yes, uh, he saw this story and he liked it a lot. Uh, and he knew, and um, it was just purely on the fact that it had too many speculative elements and sci fi elements that it just wasn't really what Berkeley was after. And I'm I'm good with that. But see, but he also reached out to me and said that it was almost like a a nudge, like, you know, stay at it. You can tell stories. You've got this. So I took that as huge encouragement. And again, it's it adds to me being stubborn though. If someone says, you know, oh, you know, no, this story, you know, can't go anywhere, I'm like, well, I think of the people that have liked it and, and i was saying to someone only the other day who was down about their manuscript being rejected by an agent i said did they read it all and they said no i said well why would you place stock in the opinion of somebody who hasn't read your book i said i know agents have to exclude like that that is the industry and it's sad and i'm sure they would love to read everything they get but they don't have the time but I That was something that drove me through that process was seeing readers' reactions to my story and the reviews I got stacked up against rejections from agents who ne- had never even read more than the query sample. I knew where I was placing my belief. Like I said, I was almost immune to imposter syndrome. I was like, you know what? I'm going to just keep fighting till I find someone that believes in this. And I did. Like I said, Shannon sadly passed away. But um, I've been out on the Ripper circuit, I guess. Uh, I've uh, participated at RipperCon. They had a panel dedicated to the Ripper in fiction. I was on a a podcast, RipperCast. Two weeks after the book came out, I was invited on to talk Ripper fiction with them as well. And it's sort of my pinned tweet, but I, I got to appear on the History Channel. And it even says the name of this self published <laughs> book on the screen when it says who i am and people see this and the book's no longer available but but because i foolishly named put it Jack the Ripper live and uncut if the producers for that show history's greatest mysteries were looking for Jack the Ripper and my book and my name came up everywhere and sometimes you know being a publicity hound is is more beneficial than being a writer i guess i but I, in the early days, uh, I did appear on podcasts and blogs, uh, and in social site forums and everything like that to try and promote the book. But I, but I was promoting in the wrong place. But it helped in this regard. So I have definitely seen good choices be rewarded on this journey, and I've also seen bad choices rewarded on this journey. And yes, some of it's luck, but you know, I. That's why I'm always down to talk to people, to meet people, to discuss anything about my journey. Because you never, you never know who's going to listen. You never know who's going to read. You never know who's paying attention. And sometimes, hey, a fiction writer can be called up by the History Channel to be on their show. And I would never have expected that. Years. Right. Not when I first started writing the story. That's for sure. And of course, all of this attention to this book has come after um I bought it from publication. Uh, it actually also won the Jack the Ripper Book of the Year Award for fiction in 2018. It was only, but it had been out of publication for six months. I even asked it whether it qualified, and they said, um, "They said yeah, it was published. People read it, so it qualifies." But I guess if there's a version of a posthumous award for a book, then <laughs> then Live and Uncut, Live and Uncut has it, I guess, because um it was a book that was not available but it was yeah they they voted it as a winner and again that's that was a huge moment of validation for me as well as a huge honor because that was part of my dream realized i said i wanted to write a ripper story that ripper experts dug and to hear see read reviews from authors that i whose books i bought for research and seeing them vote for my book was just, uh, just surreal times. It really was.
0: Oh, I bet. I love what you said about why would you why would you listen to the opinion of someone who hasn't read your whole book. I think that a lot of people, and I was tempted to say writers, but I'm sure that it happens in, in every creative field. You know, we take every single piece of criticism and we give them equal weight right especially when they say you're terrible at this and you should never do it again you know it's like it's <laughs> right. the easiest thing in the world to convince yourself that you're a terrible writer you're a terrible musician oh. you're a terrible whatever C- and i
1: creative creative morale is like a house of cards yeah sorry go on go on i just wanted I, to sort of throw that in there
0: i just feel like you know it it's so easy to forget that not everyone's opinion should be weighted equally you know, especially because, I mean, if you're querying an agent, odds are good. You've, I hope you've done your research and you're not, you know, sending your psychological thriller off to a romance agent, right? (laughs) Because that's (laughs) never going to get you a a positive response. But, you know, there are certain people who are more likely to be your audience than others, but they're also, as you say, if somebody's read the whole book, and can offer you really thoughtful feedback on the whole book, that's worth listening to. Someone who's wow. only read the first 10 pages yep. can't can't really speak to anything but those 10 pages, which may or may not be like the rest of your book. Nah. So it's a challenge oh, to not. kind of you know keep your head on straight about that kind it, of thing if you don't view it as well. You know how how much effort did this person put into it, and right you know, is it and and,
1: it's, and even at, at next level of when I've received feedback from editors, yeah. You know, some sometimes people will receive feedback and go, "Oh my god, I've got to change this immediately." And I don't think that's necessarily the case either. You should stick by your story, but obviously, if you have five agents or five editors come back and the feedback is consistent, obviously, yes, take note. Uh, and and consider you know making making that change i committed to a full year's rewrite on the murder between realms the murder mystery fantasy because an editor point a sole editor pointed one thing out but i was basically to change my voice from third person to first live it through the main character and i thought all right i'm, I'm going to write three chapters in this first person and see what it's like i wrote it and i'm like <laughs> It's so much better. So I knew <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm in for the long haul here. So to and it was like ten, nearly eleven months worth of rewrites. But I knew it was gonna be a so much better story if I made that commitment. Now, like I said, I've seen other people send me feedback and I'm like especially if it's people that haven't read it all, because um and so many people play stock in that and I I've just Learn or whether it's learning or condition myself not to. I uh, to me, you know, it's like listening to the first five bars of a song, and and, like let's say somebody listens to the first thirty seconds of Stairway to Heaven. How that song starts is very different to how that song ends. For sure, and it's and it's an amazing epic song. But if you're judging it by the first thirty seconds, you you probably might pass on the thing. So uh, some of it, some of it. Much of this is luck, but I think part of it is making your own luck as well. My current agent, for example, Amy Collins from Talcott Notch. I met Amy at a conference in New York, and I definitely place a lot of stock meeting people in person. And I still maintain I'm the luckiest guy in the world to, to be represented by, by this lady because she's an incredible agent. I don't know if she would have signed me just based on seeing my work and having not met me mm-hmm. and getting to know me over a four day period that i'm not sure but be, be, mostly because amy represents genres that uh, that uh i write genres that amy doesn't represent i'm um, her first thriller i might be her first thriller client i don't know but i believe epic fantasy is also new territory too so you know, I, yeah i yeah if if i just sent that in like you said someone said oh i don't i don't do thriller." Yeah, why is this even here? So, yeah, some of it is, some of it you had to test the waters. Like even when I sent it to to, to Tom, I I felt it, it didn't have much of a chance because I know what type of books Tom edits and represents. And I knew that my book sort of went a bit outside the box with the speculative elements. In a way, I got the answers, the exact answers I thought I would probably get in the first place. But I still wanted to see what opinion he had of the story as a as a thriller, though, and like I said, you get what you choose to take on as fuel uh, for your own fight is it, it's entirely yours. And I see some people that get beat down by you know feedback that they get uh, or negative feedback that they get and and some people get feedback that's not that negative. It's actually pretty encouraging, but they see the you know the glass is half empty in, in that regard. so. Hey, some people might say I'm in denial. I don't think so. <laughs> I I I believe in my stories, and I'm and I'm going to keep fighting for them.
0: It doesn't sound to me like you're in denial.
1: Thank you. <laughs> I've I've had good re- either I've got a lot of enablers in this world, <laughs> um, or no, I've got people that genuinely, you know, have an affinity for for my stories. So that gives me belief that there's more people out there that, that would want to read them.
0: Yeah, I think there's there's been enough positive feedback that. That you're not in denial, Thank you, but I am curious because you had mentioned to me that you you went to a flea market, yes, with no books.
1: <laughs> I did.
0: And I'm so curious to know how this went.
1: okay. This is my lesson in never being never taking a step back from putting yourself out there. So my first public appearance as a as an author or writer, whatever you want to call it, I uh, was at a book fair at a fl- at a flea market in clearwater florida i had accepted under the guise that my book would be self-published by then it wasn't it's still i still had work to do on it to get it ready and so i st- remained committed to this flea market even though i did not have a book so i've turned up to this book fair without a book to sell i made some swag and i printed like a little pamphlet with a sample chapter I had iPads running some clips, like going through the Ripper murders, the Ripper suspects. I had a, a what was then the original cover made into like a movie poster size, and it stood there. I, I didn't realize that the book fair was outside. It was under shelter, but there was huge winds. And the rain was, what is it that Forrest Gump says? The, like the stinging rain, but it was like horizontal rain as well so i spent most of my four and a half hours there fighting to keep my stuff on the table but while i was there probably only maybe 15 17 people came by in that time and one person that did come by owned a bookstore a local bookstore and he offered to throw a launch party for for the for the book when when it was published so i took him up on that and when i was there uh they invited me back three days later because the Tampa Steampunk Society was having a party at the store. And there was a panel of steampunk writers or fantasy writers that were signing books. Uh, my book is not steampunk at all, but they sort of tied the Victorian
2: mm-hmm.
1: era to that. So I'm, I'm, I was down with that. But while I was there, I met a best selling local author who I just said, look, you know, you're. Know who I eventually want to be, you know, but I would love to pick your brain about writing in general, the industry, all that sort of stuff. So, we grabbed coffee about two weeks later. Uh, she gave me some brutal truths, uh, which and it was changes that I needed to make, and it was all for the benefit and it definitely led me to a better place in my journey and my story to a better place as well. But, um, but yeah, all of this uh, and the lady that ran the the book fair at the flea market, I met her at the end to shake hands and say thanks a lot. And she invited me to appear on two panels at Megacon in Tampa and Megacon in Orlando. And it was local writers talking about the craft. I actually, I if I had kept the book published, I probably would, would have been on a few more Megacons. But I, on my own admission, I said, do I even qualify to speak on these panels if I'm no longer a published author? So, but all of this came from committing to be visible as a writer for the first time with a book, and yeah, my little jaunt to the uh, windy, rain-whipped flea market in um, in in Florida uh, turned out to be one of the best decisions I, I ever made because it's led me to some wonderful people, uh, some great opportunities. And it's things that enhance, I think, people as a, as a writer because a lot of writers are introverts. But you know, somebody says, "Hey, you're going to be on a panel at MegaCon," you, you get over that introversion real quick. Luckily, I'm I'm not reserved in in that manner. I used to be that guy, but actually, another story entirely. But singing karaoke broke me in that regard. <laughs> to- to- totally turned me from introvert to extrovert, and. I so yeah, and I've also been involved either through work or through sports. I coach sports for a long time, so I'm not shy when it comes to public speaking. So, you know, those things have helped. But like I said, you you know, if you get these opportunities, you know, anything you feel a little squirrely about or, or a bit shy, you know, you got to get over those because someone is just dying to pounce on in front of you and, and take that opportunity. And that's not mean spirited, it's just a competitive market. And it's just in a way, human nature too. People just want that same opportunity. And that's what I've always said to people, you know, you know, like that that have had agents that are thinking of leaving them. And and I've said there are tens of thousands of writers that would gladly trade places with you. So, you know, if you don't like it, that's fine. But just think about someone's already rubbing their hands hoping you do because they want to take your place. So um yeah, you know, I've learned to appreciate what I what I have uh, along this journey, but yeah, de- definitely want more um, from my career, and I think this is definitely going to be a a good year. Murder Between Realms is out on submission. It went out very late last year, and Live and Uncut, or the new iteration of it, uh, it's been subject to a four years worth of rewrites. So. Uh, the story's still there <laughs> the plot is still there which is one of the biggest things but there is added content there is a lot of changes that I made in terms of learning technically how to be a better writer and i yeah i'm um, that that's probably going out in april and i'm also like i said looking to do a new work to so i can just you know i just want to give amy as much work as i can <laughs> this <laughs> year and so she can hate me for it but no, I, I definitely want to write a new thriller this this year. I definitely want to get back in the thriller lane.
0: Well, I love with the, the flea market story that you didn't let the fact that the book wasn't out yet stop you, that you came up with all of these other things because so many people would be like, I can't go, I don't have anything, and stop right there.
1: Looking back on it, I think it was sort of like a tangible version of pre-ordering so i wasn't i couldn't sell my book there but if someone came past and was interested they could then i think i had like like i said a pamphlet made up with some details and yeah, they could easily follow that for when the for when the book came out so that was my that was the at least the intention i saw behind that it's almost it's almost like a movie trailer you know, trying to get a little preview of what's to come and then be interesting going so that that was the way that that yeah that I, that I saw it. Um, yeah, you know, I I for the longest time I think I've I thought bigger picture for these sorts of things, uh, and like I said, any any opportunities for people to to either hear my voice or read my words, yeah, I see that as just again an opportunity connecting with people because you never know who who that's going to connect with. Like I said, yeah, my book fair took me to some pretty incredible places. Uh, at Megacon, I got a photo with um, oh god, I can never remember his name. He was a he was a Doctor Who, um, Anthony Capaldi, Peter Capaldi, Peter Capaldi. I'm sorry, <laughs> See, whoops. Okay. No, I have I'm a, a fo- big
0: Doctor Who fan. I, was oh, I have a photo with him. To-
1: I have a photo with him, and he's got his hand out, like mm-hmm. out like so, like reaching out. And I thought I can Photoshop my book into book cover <laughs> in in into that hand. Like I can make it look like he's got it. So no, it was, uh, but I lo- I actually do love Peter Capaldi. It's just the name I always forget. Unfortunately, uh, I've, I I even told him at the time like I loved him in in the Loop. It's a it's a brilliant movie, and yeah, he was just fantastic in that. But yes, uh, it's taking taking me to places where I like. I said just wanting to put my name out there. Uh, you never know when when it's something that that they that's good that might come from that. Yeah, and I can think of so many examples, not just. One time, you know, I've been fortunate or one time, you know, one, one catalyst for, you yeah, know, that, that's led like to bigger things. There's been multiple catalysts everywhere.
0: Yeah. I think as soon as you start doing things like that, all sorts of things that you can't possibly have predicted start kind of falling into place, which is slightly metaphysical, but I think it's true. And because I've seen Absolutely. it, I've seen it with this podcast, you know? Um, so I think that the act of taking action is sort of both overrated and underrated. Like just doing something on its own is not necessarily, you know, okay, I wrote a page of a story. Yay, I took action. That alone is not going to get you very far. But if you keep doing it, then it will. But, you know, I I think our culture always talks about taking action, but doesn't, doesn't talk about how things can happen that you could never have predicted you know, to, right. Just like you talk about.
1: Right. Well, and a part of that too was when I was contemplating what story to write next three years ago, I was going to write another story that featured Carl Axford. He's the main character in my, my story. I actually had wrote a second story called Cult Following uh, that's currently in manuscript limbo. Hopefully it'll have its day in the sun one day. But I thought, well, I can't keep writing these because y- you have to have the first one on the table before you can think of the others. And so I thought of something else that I wanted to write in case I didn't, somebody said, Oh, this is great. But again, maybe something like, Hey, you're self published. What have you got? That's unpublished. I needed something else. And as a result, I wrote murder between realms and built a whole different world you know, from that. And you know, went into a, a area of writing that I'd never accessed myself and, you know, as I mentioned, people have said that they believe it's the best story I've got, but that wouldn't have come from just saying, you know, I'm putting all my eggs in this basket and I'm going to ride till I die kind of thing. And I see a lot of writers that do that, that they will only stick with that one story and keep going. Like I said before, a lot of writers, their best stories ahead of them, and to just rest on one story and that's the bankable future, I'm just not. Uh, I just can't sit still and, and let, let that happen. I I want to a write more stories. Yes, to increase the opportunity. But again, you never know if you're going to you, you, if that next story is something that's much better and people are going to like that because of what's in it. The industry, you know, the industry changes.
0: Well, and you change.
1: I have absolutely.
0: Yeah every every story every story you write you're learning something new that's going to go into the stories that follow.
1: Oh yeah. And, and once I was in an agency, I learned so much about the craft. You know, I, I remember receiving feedback from, from live and uncut and somebody said, well, there's a lot of passive voice in this and there should be, it should be more active. And my response was,
2: "Hmm?"
1: I had no idea what that meant. And so obviously I, and it was hard. It was a grind trying to, learn how to reinvent that book because in a sense it's changing your voice but i realized eventually how to do that and when i wrote murder between realms there was nowhere near as much passive as there was it was more active as it should be so yeah i've learned a lot of technical lessons along the way um i think being able to tell stories is something that you be the god or you don't I see it on Twitter on social media so many times. People say, "Would you rather be a technically great writer or you know, of a of a bad story or have a great story written poorly?" And I've always said, "Great story written poorly," because people are always interested in a great story. You know that there, there will be critics of technique. You know, people like Dan Brown and James Patterson and other writers have have you know critics of the, the literary technique. Do, do they care? No, look at, look at, and, and I could, could say something as superficial as sales, but it's not. It's, I would say it's readership. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, these two, two, you know, these two writers in particular have a vast readership and it's, and yeah, but whether you consider them the most gifted technical writers of all time or not, it's immaterial. They tell great stories and that's why people keep coming back for whatever they write. Yeah.
0: Cause story is what connects people connect all of us oh ab-
1: absolutely oh absolutely like i read the original self-published version of live uncut and i, I cringe a lot yeah I, I loved ellipses back then i loved exclamation marks <laughs> and i loved passive voice a lot of, all of that's been fixed now but i had a lot of readers that didn't care mm-hmm. yeah that they were caught up in the story they even if they had issue with the technicalities it was never something that was that was brought up because it was it was the story that that um, that connected with them. And I and I think like I said, you can tell someone about how how you tell stories, but I don't think you can tell somebody how to do that. You've either got that imagination or creativity or, or sense of what people want to read or hear, um, or not. So, you know, to me it's um I would rather be in that position. The technicalities you can learn, they can be taught. Being able to build a world that that's that's not as easy to teach.
0: And that's exactly right. You can always, you know, and, and editors exist for a reason too. You know, there there's always a way to right. fix fix technical errors. But yes. I think there is a certain kind of writing and storytelling instinct that maybe you can I don't want to say that nobody can learn it. I think if you want to learn it and you sit down and you read a lot and really absorb a lot, Mm -hmm. you can, you know, change how much of it you have. But, you know, that's the important part. I I was astonished when I started my MFA program and there was a whole moment in the orientation where they talked about, you know, taking care of your proofreading and your spelling. And if you're not a great you know, not great with grammar and not great with spelling. Make sure you have somebody read your stuff before you submit it because I've always been very good at that.
2: Right. and
0: And I just sat there thinking, how can how can you be a writer and be in an MFA program and not know how to do this? <laughs> and And it was just such an eye-opening learning experience for me, yeah, because it was like, yeah, you know? I mean, just because you're good at punctuation and editing doesn't mean everybody is, but that doesn't mean they can't tell a good story. That doesn't mean they can't write well. All of those things are things that somebody can take care of.
1: No, for sure. I, I usually try to justify it with one simple stat. It, it's not going to sound very humble, but it is a stat nonetheless. I am not a very good technical writer. I am the first person to say that. You know, I have friends that I truly envy because they are literary writers And they have the ability to tell, excuse me, to tell commercial stories as well. I'm commercial, commercial all day. But I've only ever had two agents request fulls for manuscripts. Both have signed me. And I know it's not because they read it and gone, oh man, we've got months of edits with this guy if we sign him. (laughs) They they see, to me, they see something in the story and i think that's how it's worked for me it's just like not going to college i for it it's not something i would advocate for everybody i would not say anything that i that i've done in in it or in writing is what's recommended to 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 the, you know what would be the norm but i think this is what's i'm just merely explaining what has worked mm-hmm. for, for me And I think this, like Murder Between Realms, you know, I had it when I signed with Amy, I still had 10 months worth of edits ahead of me. And so she signed me for the first person version. So the plot was, I believe, what got me over the line. Um, It wasn't voice because here I was changing voice. So uh, I, I believe it was the plot. The one thing that I've never been asked to change, whether it's a critique partner, whether it's an editor, an agent, I have never had someone tell me to change the plot and I will hang my hat on that. You know, uh, there's a lot of other things I've been asked to change. You know, I, I wrote the original Murder Between Realms in eight weeks and I've spent three years editing and rewriting it. So that's also a good lesson in once you've done with the end. It's not. You should type the end and then say the beginning because Absolutely. that's when the hard work truly starts. Creating is my happy place. I hate editing, maybe because I know I have to do so much of it. <laughs> but but yes, I. to me, it's uh, the technicalities can, al- can always be worked out. You, you've, you've got to have that, that good story as, as a basis. And if, whether it's fortunate or unfortunate, that's where the market is. But it doesn't have to be edgy your seat stuff. You know, there's a, there's so many other genres that don't rely on that. Again, it's just a good story. And some genres have almost like the same backbone or template to every type of story that comes out. Readers don't care. If it's a good story, if it's that type of story that they want to read, they'll read it. That's for right. sure. That's right. And and that's why there are such huge fan bases for, you know, for, for writing oh, for, sorry, for stories that are not as technical. You know, when I think of a very technically well-written story like Pride and Prejudice, you know, that, that story doesn't really exist anymore. It's more, you know, b- but if if there was just a very basic romance novel based on the same characters, the same premise, and everything else,
2: it, it would still be a hit, for sure.
0: Yeah, because we've seen it. With that particular story, a couple times.
2: Well,
1: hey, uh, <laughs> Seth Graham, Um, oh, I can't remember his name. Seth Graham Smith, I think his name is. He wrote *Pride and Prejudice* and decided to add some zombies in there. Right. And that was a global phenomenon.
0: Well, and *Bridget Jones* is *Pride and Prejudice*. Right. And, yeah.
1: Oh yeah, people love people love retellings. Yeah, for sure. And, and I'm a fan of it too uh un, unknown that's something that we haven't shared yet i actually wrote three like little pilot scripts and i i also have a short like a short story version of them one was a Sherlock Holmes retelling uh one was a dracula retelling it was sort of like what we do in the shadows meets fleabag <laughs> so so no oh, it is though so. uh because because it's it is dracula modern day dracula uh Talking to the reader, like like breaking that fourth dimension, mm-hmm. that fourth dimension and, uh, and and having that internal dialogue. But yeah, uh, but but no, he's very average now. Uh, he, you know what happened way back when has broken him. He doesn't want to be that guy anymore, kind of thing. But but he still ha- he lives as a vampire. But no, um, but I also had a uh, one with that actually brought the Hunchback of Notre Dame and the Phantom of the Opera together. In fiction, and that is a story I would love to write, Um, but even based on what I've written, because geographically their stories are very close, Mm -hmm. and they're both also very similar characters in the fact that they had love for somebody and it was forbidden or just not allowed by the society around them, and it, it, and I thought that is just such a great connection to have because they, they can't be too different. Like the Phantom is very cultured. The Hunchback is a lot, you know, huge Oath, but they have that one thing, uh, but the similarities at their is at their core. Yeah. It's not like saying, Hey, I like watching hockey. Oh, I like watching hockey too. Like these guys have had their hearts broken. Um, And I believe when The Phantom was written, it was based on Quasimodo, or, or there was similarities drawn from that. Uh, Gaston LaRue saw like, saw Victor Hugo's novel and character as you know, a, a, an inspiration for The Phantom in the same fact that they had had, had one love and lost it, and, and it wasn't so much their fault as it was, like I said, as um, a society around them that just, just wouldn't allow it.
0: Well, I'd read that story.
1: I can send you what I got, but <laughs> yeah, it's it's for me. It's a case of too many too many stories, not enough time. <laughs> but a
0: good problem to have.
1: Um, in a way, I, I gotta say it, it is, but it's also very frustrating. True, because I think I think of these stories that I've wanted to tell, and yeah, hopefully I'll get some opportunities to do that. But yeah, I, I see that one uh, with um, with Quasi and. The Phantom, yeah it was it was it was a bit funny, but it was also very much like a a World War I thriller. and I know time wise that doesn't synchronize with the hunchback story, but his involvement in the story is uh, is accounted for, like why he is there. But then I thought about it as I was thinking about this and I'm thinking, these are fictional characters. I read a story where Abraham Lincoln hunts vampires. <laughs> I think I'm good.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think that there is definitely a whole liberty taking genre out there.
1: Oh, it, especially with fictional characters that are in public domain. Mm-hmm. Y- you see a lot of that and retellings where it's a huge departure from the original tale. Um, and I'm supportive of, of that for sure. And, but yeah, I think there should be some faith. Paid to the original fan base of of these stories though, and yeah, you know, I definitely what I briefly wrote for both of these guys it was bearing bearing that in mind, like the original hunchback law and the original fan of the opera you know sort of story as well, like you yeah you know, i I didn't go for too much departure from who they are and from the setting, but i I definitely um. You know, obviously, yeah, in fiction, you take liberties. You know, like with the Ripper case, I, I took liberties. Uh, but that was mostly in parts of the case that were gray areas and, uh, and uh, to this day unexplained. So if I have a an, a, an explanation for that in my story, people aren't going to say, oh, well, that's just not true. Well, there's currently no factual explanation for it. So this will do, right. at least for this story. Right. And it reminds me of a chat that I had with a friend of mine when I was writing Life and Uncut. And he said, does your story put forward a theory about who the Ripper was? And I said, yeah, it does. He said, do you believe it? I said, no, I don't. <laughs> and he said, well, why? Why would you even write that? I said, because I'm not writing a textbook. Yeah, you know, if, if I was writing a textbook, you know, where I, I said, that that's the most brutal job in the world is trying to write a suspect book about the Ripper, uh, and therefore you're putting someone forward as a, a legitimate suspect. That jury of millions is going to look for reasons for, of innocence, not guilt. So, and I just said to him, no, because I want to spin a good yarn with this story. So I want I went with a theory that sounds plausible, for sure, but. In the to people that know better, no, it's it's not a plausible theory, but it's still entertaining, nonetheless. You know, in a fiction thriller, that's what you're looking for. But as I mentioned, there is a ton of research in, in the story, and I really wanted to put people in Whitechapel when I wrote it. And so, you know, to do that, I had to fully immerse myself in a rabbit hole that I enjoyed being down but there were times when it was very hard you know i my wife sometimes saw me you know crying at the desk and said what's what's up and i just you know i'd be just shaking my head saying i just can't believe you know that this was done to somebody and uh, but i but in a way as painful as, as that as that was it does translate well to feeling inspired to write and I remember when I wrote you know, some of the, the chapters that involved the murders, it was a, the research was very hard. But I wanted to try and give the the uh, victims a bit, bit of real estate in the story. Because it's not just about Jack. But I also wanted to, um, you know, I wanted that research or that pain to to translate it onto the, into the story. And I definitely a lot of motivation from from that, and I think it showed, you know, when you take something that you research and you're putting it into a story. So the nights when I was writing the uh, one example I'll give, uh, the Mary Kelly, which was the fifth murder, um, and probably the uh, not probably it was the most gruesome. I was alone at the house; my my wife and children had gone on a road trip, and mistakenly left me here to, to think about check the river for 10 days <laughs> but i but i knocked out a lot of the book in that time but no i i but i had to write the, the you know Mary kelly's murder and i wrote i think it was three or four chapters that night that go through that the, the events of that evening and i went to bed at about 2 a.m and i did not sleep till about 5 five thirty because I was just so amped from writing that and it was the chapter was playing out visibly in my head while I was laying in bed trying to sleep and I, it wasn't happening. And I just thought, you know what, if my, if my reader feels 10% of this when they read it, then I'll know i will know I did a good job. And yeah, I, it was a very, I, I enjoy researching that case but I know people that live it every day and I just, I couldn't do that. Sure. And that's why when I wrote the book, it started it. My writing hours were from 10 PM until 2 AM because I'm not going to have, you know, autopsy photographs and, and, and stuff like that on, on my screen while my kids are awake. So, um, that was when I, you know, I, I was a night owl by trade, so it, that helped. But yeah, my, I wrote that book mostly between 10 PM and, and 2 AM.
0: Wow. Well, I hope that it finds itself a new home sooner rather than later, so everybody can check thank it out.
1: Thank you, thank you. I, I do too. And you know, look, I, I always say to people if they want to read it, I'm fine with sending people a, like a PDF copy of it because you know, I'm not signed to anybody at the moment. But obviously, I like gaining readers, and I, you know, I've done other you know, either podcasts or, or interviews or you know, TV appearances where. I've had people contact me about the story and I've had people read it and they've now t- <clears throat> told me that they're the fans and they want to know when it comes, <clears throat> when it comes out because they will get the, the published version of it. Even people that have read the self-published version have already said, like, when it gets published, they, they want to get another copy of it. So, well, it's going to be different in some ways. So, yeah, it's not a direct dupe of what um, what you got back then. Like I said, a lot less ellipses, a lot less exclamation marks. <laughs> so, but, but the plot is still there. So that's what's important, right?
0: As as a chronic abuser of the ellipsis, which for those who don't know is those three dots in the middle of a sentence where someone trails off, where there's something that's been taken out. I I yep. feel that one.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, I felt the pain of deleting those when I when I did them. But for one character, I actually left it in because I said to I said to my agent. Well, what if this is just part of, you know, his, his speech? Like this is a part of how he talks, you know, because this was somebody who's confident but a little socially awkward too. And given the circumstances that he was talking, it was definitely a socially awkward situation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But, um, but yeah, I, the ellipses stayed for one one character, <laughs> but I removed it for for the rest.
0: Well, keep us posted on all of that.
1: I will. I will. Thank you.
0: And thanks for coming and talking with me today.
1: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate being invited on the show and having a chat with you. It's It's been great. Really appreciate it.
0: That's our show for this week. Thanks so much to my guest, Matt Lation, and to you. Please leave a review for this episode. There's a link right in your podcast app. And in it, tell us about a time when you put yourself on the line and how it went. If you enjoyed our conversation, I hope you'll share it with a friend. Thanks so much. If this episode resonated with you, don't forget to get in touch on any of my social platforms or even via email at nancy at fycuriosity.com and tell me what you loved. And if you're feeling a little bit less than confident in your creative process right now and you haven't yet signed up for my free email series on six of the most common creative beliefs that are messing you up, please check it out. It'll untangle those myths and help you get rolling again. You can find it at fycuriosity.com and there's also a link right in your podcast app. See you there and see you next week. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. Thanks.